And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Kevin, I want to start off and, and lead with a project that you've been working on looking at kind of a continued theme, looking at budget implications uh, for Idaho schools. And you're specifically taking a look at secure rural schools funding and uh, the fight with a couple senators involved in this. But tell me what secure rural schools funding is, why it matters, and kind of what the stakes are and what you're hearing in the field. Well, it's one of those programs. I mean, it's interesting to be writing about anything that deals with the Trump administration that isn't dealing with the FBI, that isn't dealing with, with Russia. But for a lot of school districts in Idaho, the Secure Rural Schools program is a really big deal. This is a program that's provided funding for schools in timber country for years. Uh, Congress did not reauthorize this program for 2016, so districts took a very severe cut in 2016. They got kind of residual funding. It was based on timber sales, not nearly as much money as they were accustomed to receiving. So this has caused some problems in a lot of school districts uh, in North Idaho and in Central Idaho, districts where you have a lot of federal land, where you have a lot of timber, so what I've done with this story is just kind of look at how that has affected some of those school districts in North Idaho, and it's forcing some very difficult decisions. I, I had a long conversation with uh, Woody Woodford, who is the uh, superintendent in the Kellogg School District in North Idaho. They're at a situation where they're having to really prioritize what kind of building projects they can do because they don't have as much money as they used to get from the federal government. Um, they're moving some kids out of an old middle school that was, uh, you know, really energy inefficient. It wasn't built to try to save uh, money on energy, so it was kind of wasteful in that sense. It was way bigger than they needed. So they're moving kids into a converted grade school. But after that, they're really going to be kind of low on money for maintenance projects. And, you know, guess what? And this is where it matters to local residents it's probably going to force uh, voters in Kellogg to have to make some difficult decisions in the months ahead. Um, he's already talking, Woodford, about running another supplemental levy, which they need. They feel like they need a supplemental levy to, to pay for day-to-day -day operations. But then if that passes in November, uh, he's saying that the Kellogg might have to come back in 2018 and seek another levy, this one for building projects. They don't have one on the books right now. The last time they tried a levy like that, it failed fairly resoundingly. So he's uh, forced to make a very difficult decision by going back to voters twice in the next few months, potentially, for funding. In this case, uh, funding to replace a federal program that right now is in severe jeopardy. Sure, sure. Talk to me a little bit about the politics behind um behind some of this. You mentioned that Congress did not reauthorize this for 2016. What, what's the debate? Where, where, where's, the, uh, where's the opposition coming from? Well, I think it comes down to spending priorities. And right now, this is a program that it's been on the books for several years. It's run into some resistance in, in D.C. over the course of several years. Um, it does not appear in the, uh, the Trump administration budget that came out uh, a few weeks ago. But there's a lot of pushback to that budget in general. Sure. That overall budget is, you know, it appears to be dead on arrival. There's a lot of resistance even from Republicans to the larger Trump administration budget document. So does that create an opening for Congress to look at a lot of different spending proposals, including secure rural, rural schools? We'll see. There's a, a Senate coalition, bipartisan coalition, 
hoping to restore funding for secure rural schools. Uh, Senators uh, Mike Crapo and Jim Risch are on board with that. Uh, Crapo wrote a guest opinion that you can find at our website at idoednews.org. So we'll see. I mean, it depends on how deeply Congress gets into redoing the budget or doing its own rendition of the budget. or, Or do they just basically pass a continuing resolution which basically keeps the budget intact pretty much as it is right now, which would probably leave this program in jeopardy and in limbo for another year. So it's a little bit early in the congressional process, a little bit early in the political process, but you can see where the the battle lines are being drawn. Right. And we've talked a little bit, uh, Kevin, over the last two weeks on our program, on our podcast here, uh, about reaction to President Trump's uh, proposed budget. We've kind of talked about uh, the separation of powers between the legislative branch and the executive branch, right, and sort of this kind of a general mindset out of Congress, out of the legislative branch that, hey, thanks for the input, but uh, Congress will continue uh, to set the budget. This is Congress's job a little bit, right? Right, and, and and there's that. So there's that, you know, macro politics of it. But this is one of those issues where there's a lot of micro politics. Sure. There's a lot of local level politics. What happens with this federal program affects local school programs, but it also affects local taxes. Uh, it affects what uh, local districts have in on, on hand in terms of funding to work with for, for building projects for other needs. So you have you know, a, a question of what can districts pay for and do districts have to go back to local voters and ask them to pick up the slack? All right. Well, it's a good report. Uh, It was published late in the week. It's going to be near the top of our homepage. If you want to head over to IdahoEdNews.org and find out a little bit about this debate and, yeah, kind of the not trickle-down effect, but how this complicated federal policy issue can translate uh, and and have rippling effects all throughout uh, local communities. And so it's a good report, and folks can, can check that out. I want to shift gears um, a little bit. I want to start talking about higher education for a couple of minutes, Kevin, uh, if that's okay. School is out, uh, and now really some of the policy-setting work is going to be done. And one of the areas that we're watching is the state's higher education task force. If this term sounds familiar, uh, it's a newer task force, but it was modeled after the K-12 public schools task force that issued a series of 20 or 21 wide-ranging reform recommendations back in 2013. The legislature has convened a group uh, to do essentially the same thing, but looking at it through the lens of higher education. They have a big meeting on Friday. We have coverage up on our site from that meeting. And this is a stacked group, right, Kevin? It's got the presidents of the state's uh, colleges and universities. It's got the members of the state board of education. There's some heavy hitters. Uh, from the legislature that are on this, but tell me a little bit about the significance of this higher education task force and and what we're going to be watching for over what could be a a several months long process. Well, yeah, I think we're still where we were when we started with this higher education task force. The impetus still goes back to this concern about uh, college attendance numbers and college completion numbers uh, in Idaho. Um, we're still way far away from where the state wants uh, to go in terms of uh, college completion, post-secondary completion. 
you've heard ad infinitum about the 60% goal, this, uh, this goal uh, to have 60% of the state's uh, 25 to 34-year-olds have at least a post-secondary certificate or a degree. We're not even close to that. No. And we're pretty close to 2020. Odds are uh, that 60% goal is not going to come to fruition by the deadline. I think it's almost mathematically impossible for that to happen. But that's still the driving force behind this task force. You know, it's a task force born out of crisis. A lot like the, the K-12 task force born out of political crisis, the, the whole unrest over the, the education propositions that had been voted down in 2012. That created kind of a, a flashpoint that created a, a point of crisis. The college enrollment and completion numbers, the post-secondary numbers, are kind of that flashpoint here on the higher education front. And you're right. This is a very powerful group. This is, uh, you know, all of the key players are at the table. Yeah. But the problem is still chronic, and, and it's very far-reaching. I mean, I was interested this week, wrote about another report about what's happening with uh, college enrollment and college completion. And this is here in the Treasure Valley, and the numbers are a little bit mixed there. Give me, give me a sense of this new report uh, about some college go on, college completion uh, numbers from uh, the Treasure Valley. But uh, what's going on, and, and, and how might that be sort of indicative of the, of the larger issue? Well, some of the takeaways this is the Treasure Valley Education Partnership, yep. which did this uh, report. And what they found, they found some areas of improvement. There seemed to be more uh, high school graduates going straight on to college. Uh, there seems to be a little bit higher graduation rate uh, than we saw a few years ago. Uh, so there are some encouraging numbers here. I mean, there's, a, you know, there's some encouraging numbers from an exit survey that TVEP did of high school seniors. They found that when they asked the class of 2016, okay, what are you going to do after high school? Nearly three-fourths of those kids were saying, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go do something to continue my education after high school. So that's that's encouraging. If you're trying to get to the 60% goal, you've got to have a, you know well over 60% of, of high school graduates doing something uh, out of high school. There were some areas of concern in that uh, in that same exit survey, you know, as they talked to students who were not going on to continue their education after high school. Some were saying, like I got to I got to make some money. I got to go go work. And others saying, I'm not sure I can afford college. So you still get economic issues that are affecting you know, some high school graduates and the decisions that they make. Yeah, bottom line here, it's still catch-up mode here. You know, the TVAP report basically said that um, only 39% of the Treasure Valley's adults have an associate's degree or higher. 39% of adults, when you've got the 60% goal statewide, uh, the numbers just don't add up, and it gives you a sense of just how far the state has to go. If you're if you're not at the sixty percent goal here in the Treasure Valley, in Ada, Canyon, Jem, Elmore County is the, the most urban center right. of the state. You're going to have a whole lot of trouble getting those numbers up elsewhere in the state. So, you know, that's kind of the backdrop as this uh, task force continues its work on through the summer and, you know, we wait and see what uh, recommendations the task force uh, comes up with uh, on higher education for the uh, the 2018 legislature. Yeah, that was the biggest takeaway f for me from that TVEP report was the 39% number. 
uh, here in the Treasure Valley. That surprised me yeah, a little bit, to, to be honest. Yeah. And we're talking about, really, Kevin, we've talked about this uh, since before Ed News was around, but basically since 2010, uh, this has been a goal for the state. And in a lot of ways, I consider this the state's flagship goal for education. When we talk about 60% of young adults having some sort of college or certificate um, by the year 2020, very much the state's flagship goal for education, right? It ties it all together. Everything we've written about, even at the K-12 level, as we focus more on K-12 these past few years and now, you know, as we're hoping now to look more at higher education and how that fits into the equation, everything we've covered in K-12 kind of funnels into that 60% goal, whether you're talking about literacy, whether right. you're talking about math skills, whether you're, whether you're talking about the STEM initiative and the, you know, dual credit, SAT day, all of it, everything kind of ties into getting kids more college and career ready, getting them more prepared for their options after 12th grade. And if you're not getting close to that 60% number in this part of the state, you're in a world of trouble elsewhere in the state. Sure, but it goes beyond that. People talk about workforce implications. People talk about unemployment rates. People talk about business recruitment and development. People talk about all kinds of things that this affects. So it really affects quite a bit in our community and across our state, right? Right. So, you know, and I think that kind of you know, it gives us sort of the backdrop that we're going to use as we continue to cover this this task force and as we continue to cover and move more into higher education issues and, and kind of the, the post-high school outcomes. I, I think that's kind of the way uh, I find myself thinking about yeah. higher education. It's not so much, a, a, you know, covering the universities as it is covering outcomes and what sort of outcomes are are we you know, preparing students for. Yeah, very good. Uh, you can check all that out. You can check our homepage for coverage uh, from the task force meeting on Friday. It's going to be a busy summer. We're going to continue to follow uh, that task force. We're going to continue to follow uh, the 60% goal. We're going to continue to follow the development of policy all throughout the summer. Right, Kevin? Mm -hmm. Now, you spent part of Wednesday listening to Governor Butch Otter. He spoke to the business community on Wednesday spoke a little bit about education, spoke a little bit about uh, Idaho's newest community college. Give us kind of a, a sense of what he had to say. Yeah, this was really billed by the local Chamber of Commerce, the Boise Metro Chamber of Commerce, as the governor's annual address uh, to the business community. And so I headed out there. It was at CenturyLink Arena in downtown Boise. More than 500 uh, business leaders and members of the Chamber of Commerce were there. And uh, it, was, it was interesting because... Governor Otter, as we all know, is well into, is deep into his third and final term as governor. People are already speculating on the 2018 Republican primary uh, for governor. But There's even speculation about whether Governor Otter is going to serve out the term. We'll finish out his term. And uh, I, I think he tried to head that off a little bit on Wednesday when he was meeting with business leaders. He pledged to continue uh, the work that he's doing on education. He specifically congratulated the voters of Bonneville County in eastern Idaho for last month uh, approving a new community college, the College of Eastern Idaho. There was a ballot referendum that passed to transform Eastern Idaho Technical College into uh, a full-blown community college. There had not been a full-blown uh, community college in eastern Idaho to this point. And we're looking at that opening 
perhaps this fall is the plan if everything mm-hmm. stays right. on track. And so the governor said the passage and the creation of this community college is going to help fill some of these hard-to-fill positions. It's going to help with our workforce development. It's going to help our economy down the road. And he also uh, looked ahead a little bit to the 2018 legislative session. He said he's going to continue to push for legislators to invest in public education. He kept coming back to this was the K-12 task force recommendations. He said that's our blueprint. That's our five-year plan. We're about three years into that. So the governor said he has more work to do. The legislature has more work um, to do. And and he he said his highest priority is preparing uh, and developing uh, a a, a workforce. And he also talked a little bit about maybe a tax issue uh, that will come up next year, maybe setting the table for a push to lower the corporate and personal income tax rates by one-tenth of one percent. Do you remember 2017 Mm -hmm. legislative session came and went with no real tax cuts, no real tax relief at all. Uh, In an election year, a busy election year next year, I'm sure there will be a healthy appetite, especially in the House of Representatives, for some sort of tax cut measures next year. Um, So it was kind of setting the table uh, for that, I think. Yeah, and and setting the stage for, I think, we're going to be spending a lot of time in tax committees at the next legislative session, uh, looking at whether it's income tax, who knows what happens with the grocery tax, because that's still uh, tied up in court. Uh, unemployment taxes, an issue that uh, the governor had tried to uh, get the legislature to address this year. I, my suspicion is you're right. We're going to be spending a lot of time talking about tax issues and uh, trying to parse out what that means for education funding. So, uh, yeah, that, that sets the stage for where we'll be. Yeah, and the governor really, he avoided the 2018 race. He did not uh, promote his preferred successor, which is Lieutenant Governor uh, Brad Little, he, he stayed away from the 2018 race. He seemed really interested in shoring up his own bona fides and his own legacy and, and, and reassuring Idahoans that he would continue to work for him. So while Governor Otter did not talk about the 2018 race, we did have a little bit of, of 2018 political news. But this is news about someone who's not running for office, right, Kevin? Right, Can you explain right. it? So, so Butch Otter isn't going to be on the ballot next year, and uh, neither will Tom Luna. Uh, the former state superintendent had been weighing the idea of uh, running for Congress. We know we have an open congressional race yep. in, in the first district. And uh, as recently as in May, uh, Luna said he was seriously considering a run. Well, on Wednesday, uh, Luna put out a statement saying that he's decided not to run for Congress. How that shakes out in this race is really too early to tell. I think we all expect that this is going to be a very crowded uh, primary. Uh, when you have an open race for Congress like, like we have uh, coming up next year, it tends to bring out multiple candidates. Uh, any number of candidates who are looking at a divided primary, a low turnout primary, thinking, you know, it doesn't take that many votes to win a nomination. So I, I suspect you've got quite a few folks uh, looking at this, uh, not ready to formally announce David Leroy, the former uh, lieutenant governor and attorney general, has announced he has filed, but he's not going to be alone no. by, by any, any stretch of the imagination. So how Luna's announcement affects that is, is probably uh, hard to gauge at this point. But my guess is you had a whole bunch of folks looking at this thing before Wednesday, and you have a whole bunch still looking at it on Wednesday. Kind of the the, the sidelight of all of this is... Um, 
I, I got to wonder, and I got to suspect that there are probably some Republicans around the state who are uh, a little bit relieved uh, for their own uh, reelections uh, that uh, that Luna is not going to be on the ballot because had Luna run for Congress, you know the storyline would have been uh, going back to 2011, the, the right. education bills that that he pushed through the legislature that were rejected overwhelmingly by the voters in 2012. That would have been the storyline of his campaign, and it would have forced a lot of candidates up and down the ticket to have to readdress uh, where they were in 2011 and 2012 on those education laws, just at a time where a lot of uh, politicians around the state have coalesced behind the K-12 task force, the five-year plan that Governor Otter loves to talk about. Uh, it would have forced a lot of uh, uneasy uh, questions and answers on the campaign trail for a lot of candidates. So, so I got to suspect that there is not a lot of uh, mourning right now about uh, Tom Luna's decision. Sure. Fair enough. I think that catches us up. Uh, like I said, we're really transitioning away from school being in session to moving to more of a policy setting direction over the summer. Uh, looking ahead to next week, we have a State Board of Education meeting that I'll be following. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to the public school funding interim committee getting back together at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. We will have coverage and previews of that. We have a, a busy summer coming up, and, and then once the summer's over, school will be back in session, and then before you know it, we're really going to be looking hard and heavy uh, at those 2018 primaries. In a lot of races, the Republican primary in 2018 is going to be the real prize, it's going to be the real competition. Uh, so it's going to be busy for the foreseeable future. A lot of decisions to be made by voters uh, and policymakers. Uh, setting the course for our future in education and beyond. So stick with us. We'll have a lot to cover. As always, I want to thank everybody for listening to Extra Credit. We really enjoy this podcast, uh, and, and we're really thankful that so many other people enjoy it as well. But, uh, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.